The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 3 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC3. And this is Secret Church 3, Episode 10. We're getting there. Okay. Poetry. Old Testament poetry. And this is... Not just Psalms, parts of Proverbs, there's different facets of poetry. Old Testament poetry, here's what makes it difficult sometimes. Old Testament poetry, first of all, is bi-directional. What I mean by that is sometimes poetry includes God's words to us, but sometimes it's our words to God. When we usually think about the Bible, we think about, well, this is God's word to us, but actually the Bible contains some of our words to God. So how do you interpret our words to God as God's word to us? You confused? That's what poetry does. Old Testament poetry, second, is blatantly honest. Look at this verse, Psalm 88, 14. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? If you stood up in church and prayed that prayer, you probably would not be called on to pray anymore. (laughs) You couldn't pray a prayer like that in a Christian circle and people wouldn't look at you like you're weird. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Don't ask John to pray again. That's that's weird. But, But this is honest. This is honest, and it's good to be honest before God. So, general guidelines. Old Testament poetry is emotional. It's just emotional. Okay? We've got to be careful to look at the emotions of the text and not try to overstudy it to get all that we get out of Galatians in the same picture of poetry. Just kind of see the emotions. Old Testament poetry is metaphorical. Psalm 23, you get a great example. The Lord is my what? Shepherd. That's a metaphor. Old Testament poetry is variable. You see poetry in Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Lamentations, other, some of the prophetic books. But even the Psalms alone, I've listed there, we won't go through them. There's all kinds of different Psalms. So there's all kinds of different poetry. Now, here's the deal. Observe their home. What do I see? Practical process. Notice the brevity of Old Testament poetry. Old Testament uses a minimum of number of words when it comes to poetry. Psalm 25, verse 4, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your, tra- your paths. That's actually only five words in the Hebrew. Three words in the first part, two words in the second part. It's very brief oftentimes. Notice the structure of Old Testament poetry. We talked about this some with the Gospels. Parallelism, where there's close similarity between lines, where one line develops the next one. Synonymous, developmental, another kind of parallelism. The blank there is illustrative which basically the first line conveys an idea and the second line illustrates it, illustrative. Um, Sometimes it contrasts. And then look for, and you won't be able to see this actually. This is just kind of a extra. You won't be able to see it because this is only in the Hebrew. But acrostics, you know what an acrostic is when you've got, you know, stop and S stands for something, T stands for something, O stands for something, P stands for something. Well, there's, I, I listed them there just, just so you, you might be able to make a note in your Bible. But on those Psalms and this Proverbs, if you look down, this is the Hebrew. Uh, thought you'd like a little Hebrew tonight. And uh, Hebrew is actually read from right to left. And so when you look at the first letters, that will give you the Hebrew alphabet. That first letter on the far right top line is Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, He, Te, Yod, Kaf, etc., etc. So you go through the Hebrew alphabet going down the side there. And so it's, it's an emphasis there that that's just adds added meaning to that particular text. Notice the figurative imagery in Old Testament poetry. All kinds of imagery. These similes like we talked about. Listen to this one, Proverbs 11. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Does that inspire you or what? 
So there's strong imagery. Metaphor, we talked about the Lord is my shepherd, a father to the fatherless, God. Indirect analogy, uh, this comparison that may not be as explicit, more implicit, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. There's just some strong images in Old Testament poetry. Exaggeration, you see some of the things, my tears have been my food day and night. Well, probably not. I mean, come on. But there's an exaggeration there uh, that, that just gives you that picture. Uh, personification, anthropomorphism. Now, that's a $10, th- $10 word right there. Anthropomorphism is when we attribute to maybe God the characteristics of a man. Listen to, um, well, I don't think I have an example of that. But anyway, that's what those are. Cause and effect. Uh, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. A foolish son is his father's room, and a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping. Okay? These are, these are good, encouraging texts. Okay? Uh, representation. And what that means is sometimes the part is used to lift, represent the whole. He lifted me out of the slimy put, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Sometimes writers address a person like he or she is different, is present when they're not. Therefore, you kings be wise. Well, the problem is there's no kings that are actually standing there. Um, why was it, O sea, that you fled, O Jordan, that you turned back? I mean, you're talking to the water. But this is a picture that sometimes they use. There's just all kinds of different creative things that writers do to bring these texts alive. Interpreting these things. Don't understand Old Testament poetry like you would a new te- interpret a New Testament letter. This is key. The letters appeal to logic. Poetry appeals to emotion. Rational arguments are central in Paul's writings. Images are central in poetry. Look at all those figures of speech and look at these segments of poetry and ask the question, okay, what does this mean here in Psalms or Proverbs? Beautiful stuff in Psalms, Proverbs, Lamentations when it comes to poetry. Look for just some of, the, some of the beauty of that imagery and the figurative language. All right, prophets. I think prophets are probably the hardest part of the Bible to understand and read. And so if you're just kind of getting started at, some old, at studying the Bible, I would encourage you not to start in Ezekiel. That's just not, it's, it's good to get in there at some point, but don't start there. We've got just flat out gruesome texts in the prophets. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Hmm, okay. What do we do with insulting texts? This is a, this is a picture in Jeremiah 2 that just is just downright insulting. What, how God speaks to his people in this way, it, it got the point across. What do we do with texts of judgment here in Jeremiah 15? Here's why I think things are so difficult. We've got texts like this, and you read through the prophets sometimes, and you're like, how did that get in here? The deal is we don't have a, a genre like this in our contemporary literature for the most part. We don't have this kind of literature. And we don't hear much about the prophets themselves there. You remember from our Old Testament secret church, generally the narratives tell us about the prophets and the prophets tell us what they said but don't give us a lot of background there. Here's the general guidelines. Old Testament prophets were speaking in light of the Old Covenant. What that means is the prophets' message is unoriginal. They're delivering the same message that was delivered through Moses in the Old Covenant. Just different ways, different applications of that, but it's all based on the Old Testament covenant. The prophet's message is confrontational. 
confronting people in their sin and God's love for them, the prophet's message is also completed. Here's what I mean by that. About 99% has already been fulfilled. When we go to prophetic literature, sometimes we think, well, this is what's going to happen in the future, and this is talking about this or that contemporary event. Well, less than 1% hadn't really happened yet. And so we need to remember that when we study the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets were God's direct representatives. They were speaking on behalf of God. You hear them saying, thus saith the Lord. God was speaking through them. So observe their home. We look at paragraphs and letters. We look at segments of poetry. We look at stories or discourses in other parts of genres. Look here at oracles. Look at them individually. Individually. The different oracles. They don't, they don't flow together from one to the next as easy as some other parts, of like paragraphs in a letter. So look at them as individuals. Look at oracles historically. We've got to know the historical context. Go back to your notes from Old Testament Secret Church and figure out what was going on in those times. Those years, about 760 to 400 B.C., (coughs) political, military, economic, social upheaval, religious unfaithfulness and reckless disobedience to the covenant and shifts in populations, natural boundaries. Look for figures of speech. Instead of Amos saying God is mad, he says the lion is roaring. And Isaiah says, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be washed white as what? Snow. It's just incredible figures of speech. Look for certain forms. The lawsuit, we're going to fly through these. The lawsuit, the woe. Uh, Woe contains three elements, and you see this illustrated in Habakkuk 2. It announces the distress. Woe upon this, the reason for that, and the prediction of doom. What's going to happen as a result of that? The promise, some you've got just incredible promises. Reference to the future, a mention of radical change, and then a promise of blessing to come. Then you've got the enactment prophecy, which is, which is really when it gets interesting. God accompanies his word with symbolic actions. It's the picture of Hosea, go and marry Gomer, a prostitute. And then you've got Isaiah here. You've got to mention Isaiah 20. Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign important against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot. Do you realize what that's saying? I mean, poor Isaiah. God instructed him to go out publicly in his underwear for at least periodic times for three years to be an illustration of, of what was going to happen in this picture. I mean, that's, that's not fun to be a prophet. So... The enactment prophecy, the messenger speech, that's thus says the Lord. And this is going to happen. This is what the sovereign Lord says. As I mentioned, think oracles. Think oracles. And there's three main points in, a, in an oracle. You look for these. <laughs> you've broken the covenant. Repent. That's what they're saying. Here's where you've broken the covenant. Now you need to repent. And they talk about mainly rep- repenting from idolatry, repenting from lack of social justice, And then their religious ritualism, that's Isaiah 1. Stop bringing your meaningless offerings to me. And then he says, if you don't repent, you're going to experience judgment. If you don't repent, you'll experience judgment. But here's the beautiful part, and you get to this in the prophetic writings, yet you have hope beyond judgment for the future, for future restoration. You have hope beyond judgment for future restoration. Basically, you look at that oral and say, okay, what is the prophet saying here? And you look at it, I encourage you to look at it through those three facets. Okay, we got a couple more. We're going to make it. Wisdom literature. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Isn't this keeping you awake? Okay. <laughs> Here's the problem here. It is difficult to follow the line of thinking sometimes in these books. Difficult to follow the line of thinking in Job. If you read through Job, you know that. It's difficult to understand literary styles. 
If we can't understand them, it leads to abuse of the text. And sometimes it's difficult to determine the meaning. Listen to Song of Solomon 4. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Is this a compliment? Descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the watching. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Wow. (laughs) Single guys, if you're looking for a wife, look for... Teeth like a flock of sheep. (laughs) So the application, don't marry someone without good hygiene. Is that what this is talking about? (laughs) Only if she has white teeth and not one of them are missing. Okay. So what do you do with that? All right, I told you this is getting fun. This is so much better than any other date night on a Friday night. I mean, this this is beautiful. So... The goal of wisdom literature is to apply the word to practical living. That's what wisdom is, knowledge applied. The wisdom books are not a collection of universal promises. And we talked about this some when we talked about Proverbs and Old Testament secret church. But he who loves a pure heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for his friend. Well, that doesn't mean if you have gracious speech that the president's going to be your friend now. But the picture, it's not a universal promise, but it's, it's knowledge applied to life practical process here. Observe their home. Look for figures of speech. Look for the historical cultural background. When you read Better to Live on a Corner of a Roof than Share a House with a Quarrelsome Wife, realize that it was possible to live on a corner of a roof at that time. Men just have this picture of being out in the corner of the roof and just kind of hanging out there. Actually, you could could live there. So understand their home. What does it mean? Interpret wisdom literature in in, in light of its specific book context. What's going on in this book? Proverbs are collection of Proverbs. They're not necessarily intended to flow from one to the next. They're a collection put together. Interpret wisdom literature in light of its overall biblical context. We've talked about these different books that are classified as wisdom literature. Basically, you've got Proverbs. It's kind of the foundation of wisdom literature. And then you've got, that gives us a picture of a rational and ordered approach to life. And then you've got a few exceptions. You've got Job, the suffering of the righteous. What happens when you do these things and suffering comes? Exception number two is the failure of that kind of approach to life to providing meaning in Ecclesiastes. And then exception number three, the irrationality of romantic love between a husband and a wife. So read, whether it's a a proverb or a section of Job, and ask, what's the point of this thing? Bring it back home, just like, remember, we got to look through the New Testament to get it there. All right. We are in Revelation. All right. Here we go. But come back to the revelation, so many difficulties, so many details, so many images, so many numbers, so many different views of revelation. What do you do? It's an easy recipe for a headache. How do you understand revelation? Well, here's some general guidelines. And I'm not going to pretend in the next 60 seconds you're going to be able to understand revelation. But just some things to think through. Look at revelation with humility, okay? Can't figure everything out, and that's okay. Look for Revelation's message to the original readers. Don't forget, this was not intended to inspire a Left Behind series. This was written to first century believers, first century believers in the context of persecution, okay? Avoid trying to construct a strict chronological map of future events. Okay, what year is this going to happen when, and what's going to happen the next year? Kind of refrain from trying to do that. Take Revelation seriously, but not always literally, okay? A lot of imagery here. When you walk through this process, observe their home. What do I see? Look closely at the images that John specifically identifies. There are some images that are consistent throughout the book that John says this is what this image means. So write that down. Get your arms around that. Look at various segments as a whole. As a whole, not always pressing every detail. A lot of the times in other genres we focus on all the, all the details and it gets us to this, this picture. Well, 
start with that general picture. Don't get too caught up in all the details. Understanding, interpreting their home. What does it mean? Stay focused on the main idea. Keep the main thing, the main thing in the book of Revelation as you read through it. When you read these different parts, write down what's the point. Let me give you an example. Do you have your Bibles? Let's open them one time tonight. (laughs) Go with me to Revelation chapter 12, and we'll close out here. As you're getting your Bible out, I want to remind you what all this revolves around. It revolves around four steps in a process. And I hope, I hope that whether you use this or something different, that tonight the result would be you saying, okay, and I know this is information overload, and I'm not saying, okay, now you know how to study every facet of the Bible. But I hope you've now got a lens through which you can begin to formulate a plan for how you're going to study the Bible. I put a section in the back of your notes that says, now what? And it identifies some steps to begin to take. I want, I want us to be able to walk away from here practically tonight and be able to sit down with the passage of Scripture this next week, and the following week, and the following week, and the following year, following year and be able to study the Bible, systematically study the Bible. Observe what do I see in this text? Understand their home. What does it mean in that context? Be able to write down. Here's a statement or two that represent what that means. And then say, okay, how does this relate to me? What are the timeless truths that are here? And then who am I going to be and how am I going to think and what am I going to do and where am I going to go and who am I going to teach based on this passage of Scripture? Romans chapter 12, we don't, or Revelation chapter 12, we don't have time to study completely tonight. But I want you to read with me verses 10 through 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation. Oh, sorry, let's start in verse 7. I'm, I apologize. Let's start in verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say this, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. While we don't have time to go into a thorough observation, interpretation, the whole process with this text tonight, the picture is this. Pictures of Satan, the dragon, being thrown down, being defeated by Christ. But at the same time, having a reign, so to speak. Having a place where he went about accusing brothers day and night at work. Spiritual warfare is real. One of the timeless truths that comes away from this passage. There's also a picture of God's people still suffering in this picture of the dragon. That it's possible for God's people who trust in him to still experience suffering. But the picture in, Roman, in Revelation chapter 12 is that Christians can overcome death itself by living and faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Christ. I want you to look at that verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. When I was in Indonesia, 
I was talking to one believer, and I asked him his testimony, how he had come to faith in Christ, and he described how he was, the Bata, he was from the Batak tribe of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. He said, at a point in its history, the Batak tribe was entirely Muslim, completely Muslim, 100%. He said two missionaries came, a couple, and shared the gospel with my tribe. My tribal leaders took those missionaries, and when they would not stop sharing the gospel, struck them down and killed them, and my tribe cannibalized them, this couple that had given their lives to go to the Batak tribe of northern Sumatra, Indonesia, eaten by that tribe. He said if a few years later, another missionary came to my tribe and he shared the gospel with us. And this time my tribal leader said, hey, this guy is saying what that other couple had said. Maybe we should listen to him. And they did. And they listened to him over and over and over again. And eventually the tribal leaders came to faith in Christ. He said, once my tribal leaders came to faith in Christ, within a couple of months, the entire tribe had converted to Christianity. He looked at me and he said, today there are three million believers among the Batak tribe of northern Sumatra, Indonesia. Will you take this word to the nations even if it means your life? And I remind you, that we will overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. May we not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. And may God exalt the great glory of Christ through his church, even if it costs us everything to make this word that we study known. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.